0: Well, for quite some time now, I've wanted to preach Revelation at this church. And yes, I think I am psychologically healthy, um, although you'd have to ask my wife about that, I don't know. Uh, I've talked to some of you about this, as well as some in my family and my pastoral circles, and after much thought and prayer, I feel that this is something God wants me to do. The book of Revelation is... One of the most brilliant, edifying books in the entire Bible. But it is also perhaps the most misunderstood book. And thus it is often neglected from the modern pulpit. Now, over the past four years or so, you've been exposed to many of the genres within Scripture. We've looked at narrative, poetry, epistles, prophecy, even law. But there's one genre which has hardly featured in our preaching in recent years, and that is apocalyptic literature. Now, you've heard smatterings of apocalyptic in sermons on Isaiah, in the Gospels, and even Paul, but we haven't spent time in books that are characterized exclusively as apocalyptic texts. The Revelation or Apocalypse of John is just one of those texts, And I think when read responsibly, it provides just the wisdom and encouragement that we need at this moment in our world and culture. Now, one book that's been particularly helpful to me in my study of Revelation is a book called Reading Revelation Responsibly by Michael Gorman. I think that title is so fitting because far too often we read Revelation irresponsibly without regard for its genre or original context. I'd like to open, then, with a few quotes from that book, which I hope will orient you to the book of Revelation and perhaps convince you of its timeless importance. Gorman begins, If the church of Jesus Christ is to be faithful to its vocation in the 21st century, the book of Revelation must become more central to our worship spirituality, and practice. Some readings of Revelation are not only inferior to others, they are in fact unchristian and unhealthy. Revelation is not about the Antichrist, but about the living Christ. It's not about a rapture out of this world, but faithful discipleship in this world, Revelation's basic function is to sustain the people of God, especially in times of crisis, evil, and oppression. It's best read then as a response, he says, to worldly empire, to the everyday evils, injustices, and allegiances that are daily with us. Revelation is a powerful wake-up call to those who have taken for granted beliefs, commitments, and practices that should be unthinkable for God's people. Just a few more here. Revelation reveals the nature of any system that opposes God's ways in the world. We need Revelation, then, to jolt us out of our slumber, to open our eyes to see the idolatry and injustice of our world today. The book of Revelation is not to be dissected, but is rather to be lived it is to be read not as a script for the future, but as a script for God's people right now. End quote. My intention then is to read Revelation as a source of encouragement and edification now. All Scripture, as you know, is inspired by God and is effective in making us more like Christ— And that includes the book of Revelation. So I'll be reading this text as a work of pastoral literature written to real Christians in Asia Minor who were facing persecution by the Roman Empire. I will not be reading Revelation as a coded system of predictive prophecy meant to enable you to know the end of the world when you see it. That is not what the book was written to do, and I think such assumptions about the book have led to its unpopularity in the modern pulpit. Revelation, friends, is not about predicting the future, it's about equipping God's people in the present, wherever we find ourselves, and encouraging us that God is in control. So we're going to start with the first three verses of Revelation this morning, which include what Gorman says is the interpretive key to the entire book. But before we go any further, let's take a moment to pray, and I'd like to read a prayer that was read before every session of church history at Duke Divinity School, a prayer before study by St. Thomas Aquinas. Would you pray with me? Ineffable creator, who from the treasures of your wisdom have established three hierarchies of angels, and have arrayed them in marvelous order above the fiery heavens, and have marshaled the regions of the universe with artful skill, you are proclaimed the true font of light and wisdom the primal origin raised high beyond all things. Pour forth a ray of your brightness into the darkened places of our minds. Disperse from our souls the twofold darkness into which we were born, sin and ignorance. You make eloquent the tongues of infants. Refine our speech today and pour forth upon our lips the goodness of your blessing. Grant us keenness of mind, capacity to remember, skill in learning, subtlety to interpret. May you guide the beginning of our work, direct its progress, and bring it to completion, you who are true God and true man, who live and reign world without end. Amen. Well, I invite you to turn to Revelation 1, verses 1 through 3. But let me say a few words as you turn there about apocalyptic literature and Revelation's original context. Uh, Gorman has some very helpful things to say about this, so let me just read a couple more quotes. He says the genre, or the question of genre, is critical for the interpretation of any writing, but especially, especially a writing like Revelation. Apocalyptic literature as a genre expresses and creates hope by offering critique of present evil, exhortations to, he says, defiant living, and confidence in God's defeat of all evil powers. We are not to take its symbolism literally. That is, to think of actual pale green horses, multi-headed beasts, 1,000-year periods. These are symbolic, but that does not make the realities to which they point any less real. The aim of apocalyptic literature is to provide images, then, that show us what is going on in our lives right now. End quote. Revelation as a book, was written to encourage real communities of believers in first-century Asia Minor. And so the descriptions and narratives we read in the book are meant to produce certain emotions and spiritual habits among real Christians. These images don't represent literal realities we will witness at some point in the future, but rather they're symbolic portrayals of current and future realities— and of God's agency over them. Now, all of this is meant to fortify the faith and resolve of the real Christians who are reading such literature. Apocalyptic literature, then, you could say, pulls back the curtain on God's reality. It shows us through symbols and images how God is always defeating the evil forces we face today. Now, this book was written in the context of imperial persecution uh, by Emperor Vespasian and Nero, but I think it can be fruitfully read by any community that finds itself in a slightly similar situation. While the original author then was likely thinking of the Roman Emperor when he saw the beast and the Antichrist, such images can just as easily represent countless other figures and systems in our world today. Whoever has oppressed Christians historically and tried to turn them from the living God could be represented in such images. And so I'll speak more to the genre of apocalyptic as we walk through some of these individual passages, but for now, friends, let us read Revelation 1, verses 1 through 3. So I'm going to be reading from the ESV And as you are able, friends, would you now stand for the reading of God's Word? The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. Who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw? Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. You may be seated. Well, as you can see, friends, this is a relatively short passage, just three verses. Uh, and it's been labeled the prologue, at least in the ESV. Now, I wanted to start with a small section so that I could spend a lot of time orienting you to the book as a whole. And really, I think these opening verses do just that. So, in the next few minutes, I'd like to walk through these verses, studying them in their original context and looking at their function in the document as a whole before concluding with some words of application for us today. My hope is that this passage orients us to a reading of Revelation that is relevant and devotionally fruitful for us today. So let's jump right in. Uh, I should say that the title that we see, the Revelation to John, was not the original title of this text. The original title was what is now the first few words, the revelation or apocalypse of Jesus Christ. Later on, perhaps a century later, the revelation to John was added to the beginning of the text, and that is actually the case for many of the texts in the New Testament, particularly the Gospels. So the most original title and the one that I think is most relevant to our purposes is the revelation of Jesus Christ. But how are we to interpret the word of here? The revelation of Jesus Christ. This could mean the revelation about Jesus Christ, the revelation by Jesus Christ, or the revelation from Jesus Christ. But I think to understand this, we have to know what the word revelation actually means, right? So in Greek, the word is apocalypse, and it comes from the Greek verb "apokalupto." And what that verb really means is to disclose or reveal that which is normally hidden. A revelation, then, is an act of disclosure. It's an uncovering, if you will. Think of something that's normally covered by a veil or a curtain, and then imagine removing the veil or pulling back the curtain, like at the start of a play, so you can finally see what's behind it, what's normally hidden. So the revelation of Jesus Christ. After studying the commentaries and arguments on all sides, I think it makes the most sense to read the revelation by Jesus Christ. In other words, this disclosure is something Jesus possesses or has control over, since it was given to Him, we read, by God the Father. God, in other words, has given Jesus a revelation, a disclosure of certain realities, and it's up to Jesus to share this disclosure with His servants. Now, later in the book, we'll meet the addressees of Revelation, the seven churches of Asia Minor, to whom seven letters are addressed in chapters 2 and 3. So we're thinking here of particular Christian communities that are scattered throughout modern-day Turkey. And while some think that the John mentioned here is John the Apostle, or John the Gospel writer, it seems much more likely that this John, a very common name in the ancient world, was somebody else was a kind of pastoral supervisor to these seven churches in Asia Minor. So God has entrusted this disclosure, this revelation to Jesus, so he can share it with these first century believers. The reason? It says to show them what must soon take place. Now in this passage we see language like soon And in verse 3, near, the time is near. But friends, visionary or apocalyptic time, you could say, is very different from earthly time. So I don't know if any of you have seen the movie Inception. Uh, It's a very interesting, confusing film which explores dreams and even dreams within dreams. But in that movie, time in the dream world is very different from time in the real world. So one minute spent in the dream world might amount to two hours of time in the real world. And anyone who has ever slept or dreamt knows that time there is different from time here, right? The language of soon, near, or quickly in Revelation doesn't refer to linear, earthly time, but rather to apocalyptic or visionary time. It's not meant to tell us when things will happen on our plane of reality, but rather to create a sense of imminence and certainty, a sense of assurance through such markers. We're about to read of visions, episodes, realities revealed in a vision or a dream to John, and we're not to think that these depict literal realities that will happen next week or next year in our time, but rather realities that are so fixed, so certain in God's time that they create a sense of urgency and trust within us. All throughout the New Testament, we get language of imminence and urgency. But friends, if we took that to apply literally to our time, we'd have to say that the New Testament writers were all wrong. Because clearly what they wrote about didn't happen quickly. Many things haven't even happened yet, and it's been almost 2,000 years. So we need to interpret such language differently according to the rules of the apocalyptic genre. To say it again, such time words don't refer to chronological earthly time, but rather to visionary time. These visions are meant to create in us a sense of urgency and assurance, which produces faith in our hearts right now. After reading these accounts in Revelation, we're to live differently, thinking the fulfillment of these realities will come soon, whatever soon means in our time. It's not for us to know, then, when in our time such things will happen. The point, rather, is to create urgency so that we live lives that are more devoted to Jesus. So the revelation God gave to Jesus to share with his servants, to create a sense of urgency within them. And then it says, which he made known, indicated or made clear by sending an angel to his servant John. So here we get a kind of chain link image where we have God originating the vision and passing it on to Jesus who then entrusts it to an angel or a messenger who unveils it to John. And then John transmits this vision, or at least his literary account of it, to the seven churches that are spread throughout Asia Minor, ultimately transmitting it to us today. Now, All of this is very common in literature of this type, which recounts a visionary or apocalyptic experience. We get language just like this in the Second Temple Book of Enoch, a book that's referenced in early Christian literature, as well as for Ezra, but also biblical books like Ezekiel, Isaiah, even Daniel. It's a common trope of the genre, and I think it is meant to show the divine credibility of the vision, since it's moving through all of these intermediaries. So, verse 1 ends with John, the writer or narrator, and in verse 2 it says that John bore witness. The word martyrison. It's where we get our word martyr. John bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Now, this language is somewhat difficult to translate. We have many phrases being used to describe one single thing. John saw this vision, and he's bearing witness to it. He's talking about it. And his testimony to the vision is also called here the Word of God, the testimony of Jesus Christ. So the vision, the Word of God, the testimony of Christ, phrases common in prophetic literature, they all refer to the account John sets forth in the document what we're about to read. We said it before in verse 1 that God has given a revelation to Jesus who gives it to an angel to share with John, a disclosure of God's heavenly perspective which is meant to produce urgency and assurance in God's people. John is the human who has witnessed this vision and has transposed it into language to be read and heard. And such language is, of course, very symbolic and literary, but is meant to, I think, simulate for us the same experience John had. Well, finally, in verse 3, we have a beatitude. This is similar to the many Beatitudes that are found in the Old Testament and in the New. It says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud and listens to the words of this prophecy. Now, prophecy here doesn't mean prediction, but rather the disclosure of God's heavenly perspective. Blessed is the person who reads it aloud and who listens to it, Describing the whole process of receiving this document, which would have likely been performed, read aloud in a meeting of an early Christian community like that of the seven churches in Asia. It says, Blessed are those not only who read it aloud and listen to it, but those who keep the things which are written in it, those who obey. Now, what's interesting is that Revelation is not law or epistle literature that primarily features commands. Rather, it's an account of a vision experienced, a series of episodes and images to describe John's dream, as it were. Those who cling to these words in Revelation, who trust that these words are sure, true descriptions of God's perspective, such people, the text says, are blessed. They're fortunate, favored by God Himself. Now, this leads us to the very heart of Revelation's function, I think, which is to bless Christians by showing them God's perspective. Exposure to God's reality, which is really what Epiphany is all about, helps to bolster our obedience and faith in real life today. By hearing aloud the words of this book and by clinging to them as true, real Christians facing difficulty will be blessed, for the time is near. What follows in the book then will encourage Christians by producing urgency and faith in their hearts. So to step back and summarize this short prologue, by hearing the words of this book and by clinging to its descriptions, real Christians facing difficulty are blessed. The book of Revelation, then, as seen in these opening verses, is meant to fortify our faith by exposing us to God's perspective. The vision is shared with us, in other words, to strengthen our resolve and bolster our obedience today. To return to one of Gorman's quotes, Revelation is not a book to be dissected, but rather a book to be lived. It's to be read not as a script for the future, but as a script for God's people right now. I hope it's clear, then, going into this series, that Revelation is not primarily about predicting future events. It's about pulling back the curtain on God's reality to help Christians, like you and me, endure in faith right now. Revelation is thus intensely pastoral in its function. Gorman writes, its basic function is to sustain the people of God, especially in times of crisis. What we see in these opening verses, then, is that exposure to God's heavenly perspective results in strengthened faith and resolve now in the mess of worldly conflict and difficulty. As we move through this book, then, I want you to constantly witness God's reality. While we see what transpires on the ground in our world day after day, behind the scenes, friends, God is tirelessly working. Revelation gives us a glimpse in symbols and images that we can hopefully understand, a glimpse of what God has always been doing and what He will be doing behind the scenes in heavenly perspective. My charge to you as we read Revelation then is this. Don't focus on some future day when you expect all these signs to manifest in plain sight. Rather, focus on today on committing this day to following Christ. Like a riveting novel charges the imagination and inspires you to real action in life, let the power of revelation, a true account, do the same, charging you to stand firm and endure till the very end. Let me close with this. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and obey. For as it was in the first century, so it is today. The time is near. The time is near. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this word. Thank you for the beginning of this journey through what is an amazing book. Thank you for preserving it for us so that we, like these early Christians in Asia Minor, can be edified by it today. We continue to pray for those who are not with us this morning and pray that we'd be able to warm them and their hearts with your comfort, with your love. Be with us as we share the table together this morning. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.